Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels, and our guest this week, we have Jason Shakir back on the show. Jason is a professional walleye tournament angler. Many of you are going to be familiar. Uh, we've had Jason on the show a few times before. It's so much fun to get a chance to talk with guys like Jason who has been in the industry a super long time and he's experienced a ton of things, a ton of success, a ton of failures and everything in between as it pertains to tournament fishing. And in this episode, we're going to talk fishing, very situational fishing. Jason tells a lot of great stories uh, that we can all learn from. But the, the real theme for this conversation is, is you know, the, the mental side of things, the mental toughness that it takes to be consistently a, a good, a top finishing walleye tournament angler you know at at the highest level you know the fishing is one thing but it's so mental and it just the decisions you have to make on the fly and you know the conditions are never perfect and that's what we talk about that's the big theme for this conversation is getting jason to tell stories some great fishing stories uh, from his tournament career in the past and talk about you know uh, situations like pre-fishing and 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 sort of describing the evolution of pre-fishing over the years and and what it takes to be prepared for these tournaments and it doesn't always go well you know the 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 assumption that these guys that are winning all the time are always having good pre-fishes or they always know what's going on it's not always the case sometimes uh, or a lot of times to be consistent and and always be in the hunt and always be you know on that list for angler of the year or to qualify for the championship at the end of the year you got to be able to make something out of nothing sometimes because pre-fishing can be very difficult and that's what jason tells us uh, in this interview and it's a lot of fun uh, just to kind of get those stories it's very entertaining and there's a lot of great fishing conversation that happens so that's what this one is about jason shakir we're talking the highs and lows of tournament angling let's get to it If you want to enjoy all the abundant hunting and fishing opportunities that Northeastern South Dakota has to offer, there's no better place to stay than Roy Lake State Park. Come shoot your limit of birds, then hit the lake and catch you a limit of walleyes all in a day. Roy Lake State Park provides both modern cabins and suites with all the comforts of home at a reasonable price. Go to GoOutdoorsSouthDakota.com to reserve your fall hunting and fishing destination. That link is in the description of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Devil's Lake is one of North Dakota's premier outdoor recreational destinations. And to find out more about what the lake and the community of Devil's Lake has to offer, head to devilslakend.com. That link is in the description. Jason, I haven't had you on this whole season like this whole open water season so let's get a little bit of an update from you uh we are right now we're through the regular season of the nwt um uh uh, the regular season the first four stops anyways uh looking back on that do you you have any highs or lows or just sort of a some some updates for us just to kind of get us up to speed on how the season's been going for you so far yeah it's been uh overall the season's been actually pretty pretty good in my opinion considering some of the practices i've had and some of the conditions we were faced with and to be honest with you i've had one bad day this year and it's cost me a shot at angler of the year it came on day one of of pickstown and i was making a pretty good run up north probably 30 35 miles and when you go that far you know you're banking on the fish to be where they're supposed to be and and uh, they weren't and 
And spots one and two for me up there, one was a big fish area and one was just a limit spot. And neither one of them had any fish on them. And they had just, I don't know where they went, never did find them. But that ended up costing me angler the year opportunity. And, and, you know, granted day two, I made up for it and caught a decent limit and had one pretty good over in my bag. But they just can't have those bad days. So, you know, knock on wood, I've... You know, I had a good good finish at Winnebago, which is kind of home water for me. But um, got a couple of big fish missed opportunities at Illinois River to start the season. And, you know, come, I came in a fish short on day one, and I had two good ones on that first. Bench. I ended up weighing two small ones, you know, like two 14 and a half inches. And, if I get those two and a half pound saugers in, I'm sitting in the top 10. So it's, you know, one of the deals, you got to get them in the boat. Your fish got to stay put, you know, everything's got to fall into place. And twin angler of the year, everything has to happen perfectly. And it just hasn't, hasn't happened that way for me. So still sitting pretty good at 15th and points and uh, rolling in the devil's lake. And I have one goal in mind for devil's lake and that's in that. That's it, man. I love it. And, you know, the, a couple of the things that you said there are are kind of along the lines of some questions I want to ask you. I want to stay basically this whole conversation in and around your tournament career, your tournament experiences and your memories of, you know, just, just all the tournaments, the impactful memories that you've had over your whole career. You know, um, you know, the ups, the downs, the successes and the failures, the things that you learned the most from. And there's kind of a specific scenario that I'm really looking for as many stories that I can get out of you that really depict this, um, you know, talking about mental toughness and how you I, I find it fascinating for one, uh, you know, how some of you, you know, top level tournament anglers can the way you guys pre-fish a lot especially nowadays with electronics where you're not necessarily fishing or catching a lot of fish during pre-fish um and and you so you're, you're only taking small samples you're, you're finding fish and finding areas on electronics you're not even fishing them very much and you can go I- into a tournament on such a high level with so much confidence that you've got a plan put together and you you know it's like to me it's it, it's fascinating when you have that confidence but what about that scenario where you don't necessarily put together the winning pattern or you don't necessarily have that you know that that top level confidence coming out of a prefish and you go into a tournament and you got to put it into something. You got to turn it into something. And and that's that's just, you know, uh, that doesn't even explain the whole scenario. You know, you guys, it's a pro. Yeah. And you got a co-angler in the back of the boat. You got all the, you yeah. got a hundred things to think about and consider, even when things are going good. But coming off a tough pre-fish and turning it into a success to me is really, you know, one of those epitomes. It's one of those like really, really, really um, difficult things to achieve at a high level in tournament walleye angling. And you're one of those guys that's been around forever. You've had ev- just about every experience that could be had at that level. And so that's what I want to ask you, that, that big topic here I'm rambling on. But I want to pass the ball to you on that and, 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 and ask you about that. What are some experiences that have been really impactful to you in your history of tournament angling where you turned a tough pre-fish and what that looks like for you into a success, man? What do you got for me? Yeah, where does a guy even begin after, you know, 20, this is my 24th year of fishing pro-am tournaments. I've never missed one. 
and I've qualified for the championship every single one of those years. So it's, it's been a long run, but man, have I had the experiences out on the water, both, you know, great practices and on the opposite end, struggling practices. And, you know, I'll, I'll try to remember as much as I can and fill you in on some of the stories of the background of how those tournaments played out. But the first one that comes to mind is uh, a tournament I had on Lake Erie, which Everybody knows Lake Erie is probably the best fishery in the world, especially nowadays with the amount of five pounders in there. But the tournament I'm talking about was, oh, I think it was probably, I don't even know the year, probably let's just say 2007, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And the water was muddy. Everything was terrible out there. You know, you couldn't find any good clean water. The fish were all over the screen. You can't get them to bite. That's pretty typical of Lake Erie. Um, going into the event and I had pre-fished probably 40 to 50 miles of water east to west and everything was the same. It was just dirty. And I know I had, I caught one fish in practice and I'm talking like five days on the water. Jeepers. I had caught one fish. And of course, the coingler I travel with is wondering if I know what I'm doing, you know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm all over the lake and I'm not catching anything. They're all over the graph. And I think the guy I was running with at the time, Troy Morris out of North Dakota, my travel partner, he had caught one fish, but they weren't even in the same area. They were 30 miles apart. And I remember having one other bite and it was probably four to five eh, about three to four miles from where troy had caught one of his fish in practice so what do you do day one of the tournament you you kind of just say well i had a bite here you caught one there there's three to four miles apart the other one i caught was too far away so we can't even worry about that one and i'm going to roll out there and i'm going to I'm going to put down two spinners and I'm going to put down two crankbaits because the bite I had on in practice was on a spinner. The one Troy caught his on was in on a crankbait. So I'm going to put two and two down and I'm going to see which one works. And I'm literally going to troll from where I had my bite all the way to where Troy caught his one fish. And I roll into my waypoint where I had my single bite and I'm not even exaggerating. I had five fish in the boat in about 45 minutes. Japers. Which, is that luck? Um, no. What happened was the, the the fish or the water had cleaned up just enough. And these fish really don't eat when it's that dirty. So when it gets clean enough for them to start eating, they're hungry. And when I rolled in there, it's funny because my coingler I had in the boat for all of practice was fishing with another pro about a mile from me. So he saw me and, and to start the tournament, and he just sees me netting fish one after another. <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, what is going on over there? And long story short, I never left that area in four days. I just kind of zoned in on where the big school was. And what exactly they wanted, they wanted spinners, but they wanted them in a certain color more than anything else. And I sat there for four days. And by the end of the tournament, I was, for most of the tournament, I was the only boat or two over there, but I was the only one there on the last day. I had it all to myself. It was about a 
half to three quarter mile area. And the guides were struggling, the charter captains were struggling that were, you know, in and around me, but not where I was. And I could see boats running all over the place. And I just kept making the same passes over and over and over. I ended up second in that event. How did, how did Troy do your traveling partner? Uh, he did all right. He didn't make the finals, but uh, he was he fished his area just north of me, and I never did get up there. When I started by my waypoint, I only got maybe a mile, and I just kept turning around and going through my area, and he'd stayed up by his area. But yeah, he did all right. He had uh, he had a decent finish. Nice. Well, I want to kind of dissect that a little bit because that is literally exactly the type of story that I'm looking for. Because that is, and you can you can explain this better than you know anybody you know to an amateur like me. Like that is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to turn uh, just a demoralizing, just a just a devastatingly bad pre-fish that it it just leaves you you know mentally debilitated decision wise. Uh, but then, but to have, you know, to keep a, a, a cool, calm, clear head, you, you know, you get a good night's sleep, you wake up on tournament morning, you just say, this is going to be my plan and it's going to work or, or not, but you just don't, right. don't slow down, keep your foot on the gas and you turn it into something. But even prior to that, I want to talk about pre-fishing. Cause like I said before, like, I think it's fascinating what, what, you know, the, the tournament style pre-fishing has really become with all the electronics that we have nowadays especially with traveling anglers where they have to break down water because you're never fishing your home water you know you're never fishing a lake where you have you know experience on every good main lake point in the last 10 days I mean you have to break this water down every time you go to these tournaments and leveraging your electronics but you're telling a story from from back you know years ago Definitely before forward sonar, definitely before even the level of, you know, side imaging and down imaging that we have had, you know, for a long, long time. Tell me about how pre-fishing has changed for you over the years, just from that aspect. Like back then for that specific story, (laughs) like pre-fishing on Lake Erie back then with that equipment, what do you remember about that? What was your style when you were pre-fishing? I mean, you know, catching fish had to have given you confidence back then. Like how else did you know where to start? Yeah, it was back then. If you go way back to the beginning of my career, that's when the first decent mapping started coming out and it wasn't even good at that time. There was a couple companies, Magellan had a GPS unit that was really good for mapping. Not many guys used it. Uh, I did use one for a couple of years and then Garmin came out with a better mapping. So back then, you know, it was, it was, there was still a lot of secrets, you know, the spots weren't on the map. So you could have it to yourself for a few years, but, most of it just came down to simple 2D sonar and looking at fish at high speeds if you could. If you had a good enough deucer where you could mount it right on your boat and, and drive around at 20 miles an hour and still mark fish, that's where you had the advantage. You know, idling over fish is kind of a kind of a thing of the past because nowadays, you know, most of the time they don't just stay put while you idle over their head. Um Plus, we have side imaging now. Sometimes we can see them on that. We have forward imaging, so we don't even have to drive over their head. We can just look around and tell you how many are down there, and we don't even. And we might catch one of them just to see how big they are, 
and then roll on. You know, there's, hey, there's 25 fish in this spot, and there's 25 fish there. Why do I need to catch six of them? You know, one is enough. So we just keep rolling on. And so one, one of the things that, you know, I kind of want to talk to the people about in the, in the podcast is that we don't fish very much in practice. We do a little bit. Generally, this is how my practice goes. Day one of a, of a practice, I will roll out wherever I'm going, pick an area, and just start driving around. I want to look at water clarity. I want to look at water temperatures. I want to see where the fish are in the water. Are they you know, shallower? Are they deeper? Are they suspended? Where's the bait fish? So it's an extremely boring day for whoever's in my boat. <laughs> All you're going to do is, is sit back, enjoy the day, drive around. And I'm just trying to get a feel for things. I might fish for an hour or two during the day just to break up the monotony of sitting in a chair. But um, a, lot of, a lot of scouting that's done. Day two, you know, we kind of get an idea from day one. We start dialing in on what we're going to do, what kind of presentations we're going to use. Is it going to be a casting bite? Is it going to be trolling? Is it going to be both? Start figuring out what's going to work better. Start figuring out the size of the fish. Um, it goes two ways. It goes, you know, you know, are you catching 20 inches over here and 23 inches over there? 23 inches are obviously bigger. But what if you're on a system that has a slot and a 19 and a half fish inch fish is six to eight ounces bigger down south than it is up north. You need to know all these things um, because if you add five of those together, you're going to weigh two pounds more than the other guy. So trying to figure all that out, where's the heaviest fish in the system? Um, and then, you know, it's just as you get closer to tournament day, you're just trying to fine tune things, you know, maybe color, um maybe speed maybe cadence of a cast different lures you know that kind of thing but the bulk of the practice is spent finding the fish to know where the bulk of the fish are and then where's the biggest ones in that in that system in that area so it's uh, a lot of times we don't know how many fish we can catch when we roll into a tournament you know i might only had caught two fish out of this one area during practice but I know they were both good ones, okay? And, they're, and that's generally what I do is I'll go to the area that I caught my biggest fish in practice. It might only have been one, but I will go there because I want to try and win a tournament. Um, a lot of times it doesn't pan out very good. You don't, you know, you can't get a limit doing that, but you get a couple big ones. Um, so it's, um, you know, it comes down to that. And let's say I only caught two good ones in practice. I go to them areas and, you know, I might only get four there during the tournament or I may catch 20 of them. So it's kind of a, it's a gamble always when you head out for a tournament and you don't know what you're in for. You can't get down on yourself if you only catch three or four out of your, what you thought was your prime area. Um, that's why you have backup spots and, you just got to stay with it through the day. I've had so many tournaments where I've had basically hardly anything in my live well at noon on day one of an event. And by three o'clock, I had a dang good bag in my boat. So it's it's never over until you check in. And, and uh, that's kind of how we roll. 
Devil's Lake, North Dakota is one of North Dakota's premier outdoor recreational destinations. We talk about the fishing all the time on this show, but to find out what the lake and the community has to offer, which is way more than we ever talk about on this show, you can head to devilslakend.com and get all that. We're talking about the lodging and restaurant options and just the lay of the land and everything going on in the community. There's all kinds of stuff all summer long going on in and around the community of Devil's Lake. Also, our favorite, the fishing tab. It's going to give you real-time fishing reports, directions to fish cleaning stations and boat landings and shore fishing piers, which are awesome, by the way. Also, it's going to give you a list of options for boat rentals or guide services and bait shops. Everything that you need to plan your next adventure in Devil's Lake is at devilslakend.com. That link is in the description of this podcast. If you want to enjoy all the abundant hunting and fishing opportunities that northeastern South Dakota has to offer, there's no better place to stay than Roy Lake State Park. Come shoot your limit of birds, then hit the lake and catch you a limit of walleyes all in a day. Roy Lake State Park provides both modern cabins and suites with all the comforts of home at a reasonable price. Go to GoOutdoorsSouthDakota.com to reserve your fall hunting and fishing destination. That link is in the description of this podcast. How often, I find it interesting, you know, that you're talking about, you know, especially in these big tournament fields where the boundaries, you know, it's a, it's, you know, all these tournament lakes, you know, they're big, you know, big boundaries. You can go a lot of places. So there are, you know, very, like it's vast water, a lot of these, you know, tournaments uh, uh, that you guys fish. So I can, I can totally understand how sometimes you find areas where, especially like you said, slot fish where you can find fish that maybe weigh a little bit more in different right. in different areas. How often does that really happen? Like how often, if a pre-fish goes, say, good enough, like how often are you finding fish of the same length, uh, different weight in different places? How often does that really happen or become yeah, a factor? I see it a, yeah, I see it a lot on, for example, the Missouri River system. No matter where we go, all the way from Bismarck, all the way down to Pickstown. And I've seen it more there than anywhere. And it's, you know, it all has to do with forage. Um, other than that, uh, there there's certain systems, like, for example, here at home, the Winnebago system. I'm, I'm about 40 minutes from Lake Poygan and about an hour from Lake Winnebago. Um, this year, I couldn't dial in the upper lakes, which is usually where I like to fish, Poygan, Winnicott, Butamore. Um, I couldn't figure those fish out. Every time I'd go out on Winnebago, the big lake, I would catch fish and they were, they were, there was more of them and they were bigger. They were both heavier and longer. So it was an easy decision for me. Now, as it turns out, I had a top 10 finish there, but the tournament was won on Poygan, which is where I spend most of my time when I go fishing out there. I just never found the fish that, that, uh, that that they won on i was close to them at one point i was literally on the other side of the rock wall i was casting the shallow weeds and todd zemke was he won the tournament trolling the weeds on the other side of the rock wall so i had just plain out missed that bite but as it turns out still took a top 10 and uh was a decent finish 
you know, Lake Erie's, Lake Erie's another place, you know, you could, that, that place is so full of, you know, what I call four pounders, let's just call that average size out there right now, four to five pounders. Well, last year, for example, we had our championship on Lake Erie out of Dunkirk, New York, and the fish I was catching right outside of Dunkirk, or I'd say within 10 miles of Dunkirk, um, weren't as big as the fish that I was catching weight-wise. I was fishing all the way over in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is about a 45-mile run straight west. And so I was like, I'm just going to roll the dice. It's a championship. These fish are a tad bigger on average, uh, heavier, and I have nothing to lose. And I'm going to run over there and see what happens. And as luck would have it, I was, I say I won the trolling tournament because I ended up third place in the event. I was trolling spinners and the guys that took first and second was Hoyer and Dewey Jelm, who were both casting and everybody else was trolling. So <laughs> I ended up winning the trolling tournament. But uh, yeah, I had it all to myself and those fish are bigger and ended up finishing third. So it was, it's all it worked. Yeah, man. And like, yeah, I just, I love the stories because I feel like, you know, the, it really depicts the evolution of, of pre-fishing and just turn the tournament strategizing, you know, in general, like a lot of, all this stuff is based on pre-fish, especially at a high level, like everybody pre-fishes. Tell me about the evolution of like pre-fishing and preparing for a tournament in terms of the fishing and the style of finding and picking out spots, like how that evolution has been in your career. What do you feel like have been some of the more meaningful, uh, you know, parts of your career or whether it was introduction of electronics or whatever that sort of changed your pre-fishing style? Yeah. Going, going back to the beginning, you know, in, in practice back then, I used to take detailed notes and, literally write down in a little notepad every day, you know, waypoints and weather conditions and what I caught them on and what color. And it was monotonous. And, we, you know, but this is when I was 30 years old. I had a lot more energy than I do now. And I was, you know, out there no matter the conditions. And, and I kept all these notes and just kind of tried to put a pattern together. We would, we would literally catch us quite a few fish in practice just to see you know because you really don't know how many are there with hardly any electronics and so you wanted to see how many were there you know how many bites could i get in, in an hour or whatever so we would catch fish and not worry about you know catching too many that kind of deal but you know that's how it rolled early on and then all of a sudden you start you get a lot more experience under your belt. You know, you've been to these places a couple times now. You, so you don't have to, you know, I don't have to drive 40 miles on the Missouri River to go check every point. You know, I know which points are better than the others. I know which which rock piles are better. I know where the trees are better. You know, all comes from experience over the years of traveling these tournaments. So, you know, you don't have to, I shouldn't say you don't have to work as hard, but at the same time, life is a lot easier. You can just go to right to where the fish should be. And uh, what I realized, too, was that after years of taking all these notes, is, and I still have the notebooks sitting in my shop on the bench, well, you can dang near have them because some of the stuff on there is, is irrelevant nowadays because sure. of zebra mussels, water clarity. These fish don't 
spawn where they used to. They don't even hang out where they used to anymore. But what I realized after doing all these notes for years, you know, writing down where the winners were, what they were using, and I have notes upon notes. I never used any of them. And I would literally keep them. So, you know, hey, I'm going to go back to Lake Erie on April 11th, you know, sometime. And you go back to April 11th, Lake Erie, you go to there, let's just say, six years later. Oh, yeah, I looked in my notes, yep. April 11th, water temps were 52 degrees, started catching them on crawlers, da-da-da-da-da. This area was good, this area was good. So, yeah, you roll out there day one of practice, have this all excited, you get out there, nothing. There's not a fish anywhere near where you thought they were going to be. And that happens 98% of the time, swear to God. Like, you think you're going to go into an area because you have history there. You should have won that tournament. A few years later, all right, we're going back, same time. I'm going to win this one. You get out there, nothing. They are nowhere near where you thought they should be. So it's that, that's crazy. I mean, I thought I was going to win Sault Ste. Marie before I even got there this year because I had a good spot from the last tournament where I, where I caught them pretty good. And uh, I get out there this this tournament practice, first first time, first day out there, I don't catch fish. Go out there the second time, maybe check the water clarity, maybe see if it's a little warmer, blah, blah, blah. No fish. Checked it one more time just before the tournament, no fish. Never did catch one out of my, what I thought I was going to win the tournament on. And, you know, so don't get your hopes up, you know, going into a tournament like, oh, I've got an area from three years ago. It's going to be fantastic. Almost never works. Sure. Yeah, man. I just, I find that stuff fascinating and it's all, it all plays in, you know, I mean, there's just, you know, you remember what it was like to be a young guy and, and building some confidence, you know, maybe had a couple of successes, maybe some moral victories. Maybe you didn't finish in the top 10, but you were on the on the right spot or you were on the right program. You just you don't know what you don't know. And I think that, you know, no matter how good an angler is, even at a young age, there's still that tuition that needs to be paid. You still got to go out there and figure out how to grind. You, f- you still got to go out there and do it over time to be consistent and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and you need those opportunities and that experience. And, uh, I, I think it's just, it's so huge. I think for that mental that, you know, just that mental toughness, it's, it, it's almost like something that you want to earn too, or at least I would, yeah. I would want to earn it. I wouldn't want, you know, you know, just something to be bestowed on me too early in my career where I had too level of a head early on. It's like, you almost yeah. need to be that young guy for a little while. You do. That's how you learn about the game. It's so much mental that it's ridiculous. Like, it, you know, and that's what I tell tell my son Jay, who's now on the Bassmaster Elite Series. Oh yeah. You know, most most of this is all mental, and to get over that hurdle as a young person, yeah, it takes time. You're going to have the jitters taken off in the morning, but it doesn't take that long to get over that. You know, within a couple tournaments. You're just fishing against the guys, you know, and or you're not even fishing against the guys. You're fishing with the guys, but you're fishing against the fish. So once you take off from the dock, who cares about what anybody else caught during the week? It's you against the five fish you need to bring in, and that's it. So it's, you know, I always kind of, throughout my whole career, the one, the one thing I always wanted to be was consistent. I just... You know, I wanted to catch five fish a day, day after day after day after day, and be 
because at the end of the year, you're going to win some angler years if you keep doing that. And I have won a couple of them. I had three or four other opportunities at some of those and just, you know, had that one bad day. And, and you can't win it if you got one bad day. But the one thing I've, I have been consistent through the years, and that's why I've never missed the championship. But at the same token, I'm not a guy that's kind of that risk taker, you know. I do this for a living, so I got to catch fish and cast jacks and 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 make make some bill pay, bill payments. But the one thing I've never really done is go for that win as much as I should have, and and that's the reason I probably haven't won as many qualifiers as I should have. I've won more championships than I have qualifiers. I've won three championships in my career, and it's because during championships I don't. I don't care if I finish last, you know, you're fishing against a limited number of guys. It's all or nothing. And let's roll. So looking back at it, yeah, God, I wish I'd probably rolled the dice a few more times, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, I've been married since I started doing this. I've been married 29 years to Jody and, and she, we always talk, you know, during practice and during, before the tournament. And only, I bet you, through all these years, I've told her two or three times, I'm going to win a, I'm going to win this tournament out of 180-some tournaments I've fished. Probably three times I've said, I'm going to win this tournament, and it happened twice where I actually won it. Nice. So, so uh, that's another question that I find a little bit fascinating when it comes up, you know, on in podcasts, in interviews or whatever, tournament anglers, like, the difference between knowing or at least feeling like you're on the winning fish versus if you come out of pre-fish and, you know, whether it's a tough pre-fish or just an average pre-fish, but regardless, you're going into the tournament and you, you don't believe that you're on the winning fish. So then there's a whole slew of other questions, right? For the decisions mm-hmm. to make is, do you, do you go completely in pre-fish mode, you know, to try to find that pattern? Like, and that's situational. It's different for everybody right. on every, in every tournament and every, like that would be a different, you know, story. But at the same time, if you come out of a pre-fish where you're on good fish, you can probably cash a check, you know, like you're saying, there's sort of a, sometimes you come out of pre-fish, it's not the pre-fish you wanted, but you got to make that decision of like, well, do I try to make catch my fish and do the best yeah. I can do with my fish? You know, tell me about that. Yeah. Any stories that you have along that those lines of like where you kind of had a pre-fish where you knew it would maybe it was it was that conservative decision of like, well, I, I can maybe crack the top 10, but you fish the whole time just knowing that. You, right. you're not on the absolute winners like yeah. tell me tell me about that and just kind of how you roll through that with your motivations and your your decision making and just sort of how that plays into your decision making yeah and it's different for me because i do this for a living and like i said before sometimes i have to catch fish just to to cash a check and to keep rolling throughout the season and you know there's so many instances where throughout the years you know and everybody everyone that i fish against you know when we go to a rules meeting or whatever everybody you already know do i have a chance to win or do i have a chance to even cash a check based off your practice and 
most of the guys don't have a chance to win. Let's just face it. So the number one question you always hear at a rules meeting is, what do you think it's going to take to cash a check? (laughs) It's like people ask me this all the time, you know, and I don't see them all week and see them there. What do you think it's going to take to cash? And I'm like, one day or two, (laughs) you know, because uh, that's a big difference there. But two days to cash, uh, I'm going to say 30 pounds, you know, and some of the guys, you know, look at me like, oh, cool, you know, I'm on the same page. And some of the guys are be like, oh, boy, no, I missed something drastically out on the water because there's no way I'm going to catch 30 pounds of cash. So, you know, that's – I'm not that guy that's – you know, if I know I'm going to be right in that check range and that's kind of based off my practice, I'm just there to cash. I'm honest. I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to go on a flyer somewhere and say, yep, I can barely cash, so I'm just going to roll the dice on this spot that's 30 miles away and see what happens. And that's not me. So some guys can do that just because, you know, maybe they got a full-time job. They're only in one tournament. They're jackpotting, you know, that kind of thing. But not me. So, you know, that's, you know, every tournament's different that way. You know, should you stay? Should you go when you're in an area? You know, it's. Nowadays, it's a lot easier to know if I should stay or go based off of live scope. Yeah. Um, obviously, in the old days, we didn't know if they were there. If you couldn't see them on the 2D, that's all you had. Um, you basically hope they're there, and if they're not biting, you just leave, and you come back in an hour and a half and try them again and see if they're biting. So nowadays, you know, at least I can, I can scan around like, you know, for example, Pickstown, I roll into my numbers spot, which is where I was going to fill my 19 inches relatively easily. And I put the live scope down and I start pulling bottom bouncers and, and slow death. And and I'm scanning around and I'm like, there's nothing here. They are, they are gone. I'm like, all right, maybe they're shallow. You roll up there, you scan around, they're not there. You catch one 16 incher, throw it back, it's too small. Scan out, get a little deeper, go out 28, 30, 35 foot of water, scan around. Oh, there's a couple. You catch another 16 inch, that's too small. You throw it back. Next thing you know, you can't find the fish. It's 10 30 in the morning. You have nothing in the live well. You're 30 miles from home. Well, I'll hit my other spots on the way in. Well, next spot's dead. The next spot's dead. (laughs) You know, it's now noon and you've got no fish in the box. And now you go into super scramble mode and just start throwing fish in to get a limit. And next thing you know, you've got five fish for seven pounds. You know, it's horrible. Yeah. So that's kind of how, you know, the scenarios play out. It's, you know, I guess when a major thunderstorm rolls in the night before the tournament and those fish out there don't like it very much. And I heard that from a lot of guys like, man, was it hard for you? I'm like, hard. Yeah, that was terrible today. And all my fish are gone. They're like, yeah, me too. Was, my best spots were terrible. So, you know, Mother Nature is another one that plays a factor. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on winning fish and Mother Nature threw me a curveball. And in 2000 was the RCL championship, the very first RCL championship on Green Bay. I was just coming off of winning the MWC championship. And I roll in the RCL championship, and I'm leading the tournament after two days. It's a four-day tournament. 
250 boats. I'm still a nobody in the industry. I just won MWC, but I'm still pretty young. I roll out there. I'm leading after two days, fishing an area primarily to myself, 30 miles out on Green Bay. Day three, we cut to the top 12. So I'm only fishing against 12 guys. Mind you, first place for me is $400,000. So I, I'm a little worked up. I'm not sleeping much. I'm in the lead. This is life-changing amount of money. Just just had Jay. He's one year old at the time. And I get to the ramp with 12 boats on day three, and all the officials are there and all the cameras. This is there on ESPN. There's a lot of stuff going on. They come over to all of our boats. They said, yeah, it's too windy. We're going to hold you in the river on day three, Fox River in Green Bay. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Because yesterday it blew 25 and I saw eight foot waves out there and you sent 250 boats out. Today is only 12 boats and you're not going to send us. Well, so I don't have a choice in this matter. I need to go in the river and catch my fish to qualify for day four. I go in the river, I catch my fish. I qualify in sixth to make it to day four. Top six make it to day four. I'm in sixth. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make it out there day four. I'm going to get, and at this time, we only need three fish because we're by ourselves. I'm going to roll out there. I'm going to catch my three fish, and I'm going to roll back in, and I'm going to be $400,000 richer by the end of the day. I didn't sleep all night. Roll out in the morning, get to the ramp. Still the same wind as the day before. All the big officials were there having their little meeting. They come over to all our boats. Guys, we're sorry to inform you we're going to hold you in the river again on day four. And my heart just sank because I'm like $400,000 of fish are waiting for me right out there. And, and I know exactly where they should be. And, and nothing's changed since day two. And I'm like, this is crazy. I knew I wasn't going to win at that point because the spots I have in the river aren't big enough to, to win on. And they're not. I'm not in the right areas, and I'm not going to move in on the guys that have fished the river for four days. Yeah, well, and to to be fair, you know, some of those guys that were fishing the river, if that was their best areas, they were probably in that scenario we already talked about, where they were just there to cash. You know, they didn't have exactly. They were just there to cash, and then it just fell. It just fell on them. Fell right on them. Mother Nature controlled that tournament a hundred percent. I mean, these guys were fishing the dam on the Fox River. That's not where you win a tournament on Green Bay, but they didn't have anything else. And then, you know, obviously I was leading after two days out in the lake and never got to go back out to my fish. So it's, you know, it still haunts me to this day because that is a life-changing moment when you can have a chance at that much. Hats off to Scott Corb again. He won, he won $300,000. He didn't have the right contingencies, but, you know, I just, there was nothing I could do about it. It wasn't in my hands. I wasn't going to move in on them guys that have been there for four days. And, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, but you, you know, sticking to your morals and not moving in on that, doing, you know, making those decisions, like, that's not easy for everybody to do. And that's no. that's one of the things where I've really respected your career. And I feel like you've had so many great successes that, I think you can, can definitely uh, sort of attribute to just, you know, being the guy that you are, that you have had good karma. I feel like that's true. I've never 
I've never, ever, ever heard your name. You know, maybe I'm not talking to the right people, but I've never heard your name from, you know, hundreds of guys in the industry spoken yeah. any other way than positive. And uh, that's absolutely true uh, from me, you know, whatever that's worth. But I think that that's, that's definitely a takeaway as well. In the tournament world, there's just... It's a it's a it's a such a competitive environment that that's part of the story, the decision making of like when you got to scramble or you got to do certain things, you know, there's those individuals that will move in on those guys and it's yeah. perfectly legal. It's uh, it's all fair game. It's competition. But there's definitely sort of a fishing ethic behind some of that stuff. And there's a lot to appreciate about somebody that can lead from the front. Uh, you know, as far as just being a captain, you know, and, and acting a certain way. And, you know, you still fished really hard. You gave yourself a chance to have a lottery bite, but you knew deep down maybe right. it just the likelihood of it happening. But but we're here now. And like you said, you've won more championships, uh, uh, you know, than regular season events in the NWT. And that's uh, there's definitely something to be said for that. Not everybody um, not everybody's got what it takes to win the championships because that is a totally different arena you say you know it's maybe it's maybe because you know you fished it wide open you know you fished it because it's the last one of the year but so was everybody else and when everybody at the championship as it is now it's a true championship once again in the nwt it's the top 40 boats when you you know you go into devil's lake and you know the last couple of years it's like it's it's the perfect example of that. All 40 boats are pedal to the metal. Oh, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's why, like, I don't know, I, I hear it over and over. All you guys, you know, it's, it's, it is important during the regular season, whether you win them or not, to be in position to go to the championship because mm-hmm. that's where, man, that's, that's, that's where it's at, man. And I, that's I don't know. I love, the, yeah. I love those stories, man. I love it a lot. Well, Jason, I appreciate the stories. That is entirely what I wanted to, to, to talk to you. Just get more of your stories and to depict your career a little bit and have some of these podcasts that are, are never going to go away. It's going to live forever this day and age with the Internet and everything. This podcast will never go away. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren are going to be able to listen to your voice telling these stories, and I think that's super cool. Um, and these are really yeah. cool, impactful stories that we can all really learn from and just try to get understand and figure out what makes uh, you tick you know, mentally with your confidence uh, after tough pre-fishing and hearing those stories and just the different scenarios that really uh, weigh heavy on your decision-making as, as a high-level tournament angler and uh, those pressure cooker scenarios where there's a lot on the line and for you it's everything it's your career you're one of the few full-time guys you're one of the few full-time guys that has to make a decision on paying your bills uh you know with with your fishing and so uh yeah man super impactful yeah appreciate that i mean it's a whole nother we can do we can do lots of these podcasts on all these subjects you just talked about just making a career out of it and you know doing things the right way and you know not moving in on guys and respecting the others that are fishing against you i've got so many more stories that i can i can bring to you i'd be glad to be on anytime you guys want me oh man yeah i love that stuff and i think that yeah we will definitely do that again we'll, we'll definitely do stuff like that because it is kind of you know, those are some of the stories that need to kind of be out there we need to have yeah. like we need to have some of that media we need somebody to produce those stories so that 
you know, the younger guys coming up can be inspired by the right things and be inspired by the right people um, to get into, you know, because somebody will listen to this that's getting into tournament angling or somebody in the next five years might get into tournament angling and they'll go back and want to listen to some fishing podcasts, you know, to, to you know, listen to Jason Shakir talk about tournament fishing and they'll land on this. And, and that uh, that should be a big takeaway for somebody that's tournament fishing is to, um, you know, you're, you're out there. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts when you're making your decisions. And, um, you know, some of those ethical decisions are, are a big part of it as well as the competition and catching your fish and all that. But anyways, man, we've done it. We're so good on time. I appreciate the stories. I take a lot away from this. And uh, I love that we were able to lay this down. So I'll let you back to it, Jason. And I appreciate this on right. short notice, man. You bet. Anytime. appreciate you guys. All right, man. We'll talk to you. Good luck right. at the championship. I'll be, I'll be watching. I- All right. See ya. Once again, this episode of the JMO Podcast is brought to you by Devil's Lake Tourism. Head to devilslakend.com. That link is in the description. And you're going to find out everything that the lake and the community of Devil's Lake has to offer before you plan your next adventure in Devil's Lake, North Dakota.